Hey, Rebel Yammers, a couple of quick announcements before we get into this podcast. First of all, if you want to keep up to date with every time we post something on the website, be sure you go to the side of the blog and subscribe to Rebel EM. I promise I will not inundate you with spam or share your email. This is literally just to keep up to date with the site, so that way you know every time we publish something new. The second announcement is that the Rebellion and EM 2020 Clinical Conference registration is now open. This will be taking place June 5th through 7th, 2020. There's going to be only 200 spots available, so make sure you get your registration in. The website to register is www.rebellioninem.com. And now on to the show. Welcome back to RebelCast. This is episode 74 it's all about the vitamins in sepsis, or is it? So I'm Salim Razai, I'm your host, and my co-host for this episode is going to be Anand Swaminathan, better known as The Swami. What's up, brother? Not much, man. Good to be back. Good to talk about this trial. Fortunately, it's something that there hasn't been a lot of buzz about. No one's really been talking about it. So this is probably the first time that our listeners are hearing about the vitamin study. Obviously, I'm being as ironic and uh, facetious as I possibly can be because I don't think there's a study that's made bigger news in the last six months. Uh, this one's a huge one. So I'm really excited to get into it. I was going to say in the, so when people look at the show notes, I usually like link to other blogs and podcasts and there's no less than like 10 <laughs> on, on this paper. So this is of course the first time they're going to hear about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a big study that all of our friends obviously are going to be talking about this. All of our, the sites that we go to on a regular basis, everyone's going to have a post on this. And I, and I think it's actually really useful to read a lot of those and get a little bit different takes on it. I think most of us agree with a lot of the critiques and the uh, strengths of the study, but it's still interesting to see how people interpret little pieces of it. Exactly. Let's get into what we do. Let's start with a little background. I'll start with that and then I'll have you give us the clinical question. We'll kind of go from there and break this down. So the background on this paper is the combination of vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thymine and sepsis has been a topic of really hot debate in the last couple of years. And there's a hypothetical basis that you could make an argument for the use of this combination of medications. But as with anything we do in medicine, it's important to ensure there's no like untoward effects toward our patients. Now, in Dr. Merrick's before and after study, which was what really kind of made all the limelight in this, we saw some pretty amazing results showing that treatment reduced hospital mortality by 31.9%. 31.9%. Pretty impressive. The treatment group, 8.5%. Uh, control group, 40.4%. But the question for everyone was, was this too good to be true? And in my mind, yes. The answer is yes. It is a little too good to be true. And there's several reasons why. So first of all, it wasn't a randomized control trial. It was a before and after study. It was a super small sample size. We're talking like 98 patients. It was single center. And then the biggest thing is that there was a significant selection bias. They basically got to pick the patients that they were going to put into that protocol. And now we finally have our first randomized control trial evaluating the, let's call it metabolic cocktail in a general population of septic shock adult patients. So Swami, what's the clinical question we're trying to answer with this study? Yeah, so the paper, and again, I'm sure everyone's heard the paper before, but this is by Fuji and his colleagues, effective vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine versus hydrocortisone alone on time alive and free of vasopressor support among patients with septic shock. The vitamins randomized clinical trial. This was published in JAMA near the middle of January. Our clinical question is, does treatment with vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine lead to a more rapid resolution of septic shock compared with hydrocortisone alone? 
So this was basically a prospective feasibility pilot. So they were checking feasibility of this medication. It's the first randomized clinical trial. It was multi-center. It was 10 ICUs in Australia, New Zealand, and Brazil. It was randomized, which we love to hear. It was open label, and it was parallel group controlled trial. And we'll come back to that open label part. Now, when we look at the treatment, there was a very specific protocol that they followed, which was basically similar to what Merrick did in his original paper. And it was basically vitamin C, 1.5 grams every six hours IV, plus thymine, 200 milligrams every 12 hours IV, and then hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams every six hours IV. And then they did this while the patients were in the ICU or until shock was resolved. For the vitamin C and thymine, they went out to 10 days. For the hydrocortisone, they went out to seven days. And then the control was hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams every six hours IV. Again, the same stipulations as we saw with the treatment. In this study, the reason why hydrocortisone was in the control group is because the ICUs that they were looking at, that was part of their standard treatment of septic shock. So they had to keep that as the constant. And they just added the vitamin C and thymine, as you said before. And the one other thing I want to point out is this is the first multicenter randomized clinical trial looking at all comers with septic shock, as opposed to the Citrus Ali paper who came, that came out last year that only looked at patients with ARD. So yes, there is another randomized control trial, but it's a little bit of a different population. So this is really the first one looking at the general group of septic shock patients. And as far as outcomes, what they were looking at as a primary outcome was time alive and free of vasopressors at day seven after randomization. And the reason, and this sounds like a little bit of a funky primary outcome, they were basically looking at early reversal of shock as opposed to delayed, more delayed outcomes. And that's why it's the time at seven days. They had a bunch of secondary outcomes and they included 28 and 90 day mortality, ICU and hospital mortality, vasopressor free days, a bunch of things that we'll throw all in the show notes. And then we'll list the inclusion exclusion criteria also in the show notes. There's just too many to actually put here, but just for people to know, it's adult patients with basically septic shock based on the sepsis three definition. And they had a lot of other kind of specific things for that, but you can see all the specifics in the show notes. I think what everybody's wanting to hear is the results. So there was 786 patients that were assessed for eligibility. And the way they whittled this down to their 211 patients is 570 were excluded based on preset criteria, which was the most common reason these patients were excluded. And that most common reason was they had a diagnosis of septic shock for greater than 24 hours. So that ended up leaving 216 patients that were randomized, and then five patients withdrew consent or consent wasn't obtained. And so that left 211 patients. When we look at the primary sites of infection, it's about what we see in our emergency department. Pulmonary was about 30%, GI was about 30%, and urinary was about 15%. And then when we look at the treatment in both groups, the, the treatment was given for an average of about 3.4 days. So Swami, what was the primary outcome? What did the study find? All right, so again, looking at that primary outcome of time alive and vasopressor free up to day seven, the treatment group, so the group that got vitamin C and hydrocortisone and thiamine, it was 122.1 hours with a range of 76 to about 145 hours. And in the control group, it was 124.6 hours. And that was not statistically significant. So no statistically significant difference between the treatment and the control group. The other secondary outcomes, and again, we'll list all these in the show notes, but there really wasn't anything that was significantly different. So no difference in 28 or 90 day mortality, ICU mortality, hospital mortality. There was a difference in the median change in the SOFA score at day three, but I don't think the patients really care so much about that. So I don't think that that's really all that relevant. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. I mean, anytime you have 10 secondary outcomes and a study's not powered to that, 
it's likely that you're going to have some secondary outcomes that are positive. And so then the question becomes, is that, first of all, clinically relevant? And then is it even really statistically relevant? And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get a little bit further on. So let's get into the strengths and limitations. So I'll start with the first strength. So like you stated earlier in the podcast, this is the first randomized clinical trial of evaluating the use of vitamin C, thymine, and hydrocortisone in a general population of septic shock patients using the same cocktail protocol as the Merrick study. Now, the one thing I want to say about this is that the reason this is so important that this is the first randomized clinical trial looking at a general population of septic shock patients is this is what we see every day. This is what we do in the emergency department. And so this replicates the exact same type of thing that we're seeing in the ED. And so this applies to the patients that we take care of. Right. So as opposed to that original Merrick study, the before and after study that had all of these methodologic limitations, this one really removes a lot of these. So there isn't a selection bias going on here. The before and after in itself has a lot of problems because other things in care may have changed, which drives that mortality difference. And a randomized control trial, since it's happening simultaneously, there isn't some new thing that's come in that would bias these results. So it's really important that it's prospective and randomized as opposed to that before and after uh, setup as in the Merrick study. Now, randomization was really well done here. They did good sample size calculations, and they recalculated those, and they explained all of that in the paper, which I really love. Uh, these authors really understood the limitations that they could put on this study by not doing those things. And they did a good job of, of really explaining to everybody why they did exactly the things that they did. And we'll come back to that in the limitations as well. And I think it is also really important that they use the same cocktail. They didn't vary the amount of vitamin C or the amount of thiamine from that merit study, because that is one of the criticisms that comes up. Citrus Ali gave much higher doses of vitamin C. Maybe the higher doses make a difference. But remember, we are comparing this study to that original before and after study, same cocktail between the two groups. That's really important to see. Yeah. The other thing that I really liked about this study is it wasn't just done in high uh, and middle income countries. It was also done in low income countries as well, right? So uh, Brazil, I guess, would be considered middle income, not low income. But maybe their ICUs are different than what we see in Australia. Australia and New Zealand or in the United States. And so it was a real nice mix. I mean, it really generalizes well, I think, worldwide, the results of this study. Let's get a little bit into the limitations, Salim, because there are some important limitations that we have to note here. And one that you mentioned up front is the fact that this is an open label study. This wasn't blinded. And that can introduce bias. And it's hard to know how that bias is introduced. So the researchers in these different locations, they may have been very gung-ho for vitamin C. And so blinding it would help to take out their own biases going into it. And having it as an unblinded study might actually favor the group that got the cocktail. Now, on the other hand, these guys all might be skeptics. They may all think that vitamin C and thiamine doesn't do anything. And so having it unblinded biases the results towards the null outcome, towards the control group. We don't really know how it affects, although Paul Young, one of the authors, does explain why they did an open-label trial, and it has a lot to do with funding. They just didn't have the money that was necessary to do a blinded study, which, Salim, I think is also a really interesting thing and why I love when the authors discuss what they've done. I didn't realize that blinding costs so much, but it makes sense that blinding is going to be more expensive than doing an open-label study, and the financial limitations this group had meant that they had to do open-label. Yeah, and I, I love it when, when there's transparency in these studies. It, it tends to make you less skeptical of the results that you actually get. And so that was really big in this paper. I felt like the authors were completely open about any of their limitations and why those limitations occurred. And so I, I really, really like this study. I know it's not the biggest 
thing we've ever had, but I just felt like they did such a good job. Now, for people who are pro-vitamin C cocktail or metabolic cocktail, there's one thing that's a big limitation in this study, and if that is if you look at the average time from meeting eligibility criteria to the first dose of medications. So for vitamin C, this was about 12 hours. The range was 5.7 to 19 hours. For hydrocortisone, it was about 9 hours with a range of anywhere from 4 to 15 hours. Now, if you add to this the time from ICU admission to randomization, which was about another 12 hours, this is over 24 hours before anybody received this medication. And I guess for people who are proponents of this, they would say that, well, these medications may have been given too late to have any clinical effect. Yeah, I think it's a valid criticism, although I'll point out that I'm not sure how much that time makes a difference. No one has shown that the time to administration of these medications makes a difference in outcomes. And the sepsis doesn't start right at the time of randomization or at the time of triage. Sepsis started before the patient got to you. So you have no idea how long or short the delay from the onset of patient's symptoms to randomization to getting the drug actually was. You just know the time from when they come to the hospital or when they hit triage or when they hit the ICU until when the drugs are administered. So we don't really know what the delays are and we don't know that the delays make a big difference. What we can sort of tease out from this is that this wasn't a bunch of moribund patients where they're like, we've done everything we possibly can. Now let's randomize them to either one of these therapy arms. This was a general group of septic shock. So again, this is probably similar to what would happen in an actual hospital unless we started having these measures saying that you got to give vitamin C, thiamine, and hydrocortisone when the patient's in triage, like we have with some of our metrics, other metrics for sepsis in terms of fluids and antibiotics. But barring those metrics, there will be some delay in real life between when the patient gets to you, when you make the diagnosis, after you've administered antibiotics, et cetera, and then giving these medications. So I don't know that it really makes that much of a difference, but it is one of the things that has really been honed in on by those proponents of the cocktail. Now, speaking of things that make a difference in sepsis, I think this is also a limitation of this study. So it's, it's part A and part B. So part A is the amount of fluids received wasn't documented in this trial. So I hope they used a restricted fluid strategy, but we don't know. I mean, they could have gotten 10, 15 liters for all we know, because I looked for it in the supplement. I looked for it in the main paper. I just couldn't find anywhere where they documented that. So that's A. B, the time to administration of antibiotics was also not collected, and the appropriateness of antibiotics wasn't collected. And we know that the current pillars of sepsis management, like you said, Swami, it doesn't start at time zero. It's probably been going on for a while. So it's going to be earlier identification, source control, and early appropriate antibiotics. And unfortunately, we just don't have any information on those two modalities in this study. Yeah, I agree. And I think honing in on those really important interventions is the most important thing. And, and we just don't have all of that information. I think that is important. Although, again, it's probably that these these patients were getting the right interventions based on the group of researchers that we're looking at. But we don't know that uh, we would we would like to hope that that is true. But we don't know that for sure. I agree with you. We have a lot of other points in the discussion that will be in the show notes. We're not going to get into all of this, but I think that there's a lot of nuances to these kind of studies that we really do have to look at. And I think at the end of it, Salim, what we have to ask ourselves is, does this paper change what we were doing or should it change what we're doing? And the way that I look at it, Salim, is that people fall into three groups in terms of the metabolic cocktail. 
There are those that are proponents who really believe that there's a, a massive uh, mortality difference by giving these medications. There's the skeptics who think it's possible that these might help, but I don't have the data to show that. And then I think there is a middle group. There's a group of people who really don't have a dog in the fight. They're kind of just waiting. They're waiting for more information to come out before they decide which way to go. I think, Salim, you and I tend to be on the skeptic side. This isn't something that I have given to my patients that I am really falling in line with, that we have to be doing this. And there are a number of reasons for this. What we can say is not part of this is that we're not worried about the cost. We're not worried that vitamin C costs too much or that thiamine costs too much. These are inexpensive medications. Nobody is making profit off of this, at least not right now, until somebody comes out with uh, like a, a bag that has all three medications mixed together and you can just administer one thing and be done with it. But for right now, no one's making money off of this. So we can take that part of it out. And so I think that a lot of the proponents would say, Salim, why not just do it? While we're waiting for better literature to come out, better data to come out, why not just do it? It seems pretty good. And you know, Merrick is a is a good researcher. He does a lot of great work. He's a well-known intensivist. He's saying to do it. Why don't we just go ahead and give the vitamin C, give the thiamine, and wait for the data to come out and see what happens? Yeah, I mean, I mean, well said. I mean, I think the big issue here for me is uh, I am a skeptic. I, I do for full transparency to all the listeners. I think what we have to remember is that for every one thing that we do or that becomes a new metric or becomes something else, there's something else now we can't do or we have a cognitive load on something else. And that's really, really important when you're dealing with critically ill patients. And if it's okay with you, Swami, I just want to read this quote from the accompanying editorial done by Andre Khalil, because I think he said it best. I mean, he's basically summarized what I was thinking already. And that is, moreover, use of high-dose vitamin C in combination or alone, just in case, or as a measure of last resort, aside from providing no survival benefits, could have several other potential consequences, including diverting funding from needed research to examine sepsis mechanisms and diagnostics, stifling the development of other sepsis therapies, perpetuating false hopes for patients, families, and clinicians, and delaying proven life-saving therapies such as prompt initiation of antibiotic therapy. And I just thought that was a beautiful, well-said, basically what I was kind of thinking, and I just didn't want to recreate the wheel. So I, I thought that was really well done. I agree. I think it's really well put, and I think it really highlights a lot of the issues that we have, remembering that it's a zero-sum game. If I prioritize this cocktail, I'm deprioritizing something else. That's just naturally how things happen. And maybe I forget about the antibiotics. Maybe I forget about titrating the pressors. Maybe I forget about something else. Maybe I don't. But I don't know that I want to take the risk until I have real data showing that this works. And the other big part of this, and this is not necessarily on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, but an overall looking at treatment, if we decide that we're going to do this as a group of emergency physicians, as ICU docs, and then we get data showing that it doesn't work, it is much harder for us to back out of starting something. So once we've started this, it becomes routine care. It's going to be much harder for us to back away from it than if we're skeptical and we wait. And we wait and see if there's better data, if there's good data showing that it works, and then jump on the bandwagon. And Salim, I think both of us would say, if we get a couple of RCTs showing a mortality benefit, we'll both be on board with this treatment. We are not going to live and die by our original ideas, our original interpretation of the data. We are willing to be flexible and adapt. I just think that a 31 or 32% mortality difference for a couple of vitamins seems unlikely. But I'll tell you what, if there's a 5% mortality benefit, I would still do it. If there's a 3% mortality difference, 
I would probably still do it because that still is relevant to our patients. So I'm ready to change my mind on this one once I see better data coming out saying that we should do it. You know, I do too, but I, I don't think we're going to see it. I mean, the thing with sepsis is it's not a single mechanism. It's it's multifactorial. I mean, there's, you know, just the the protoplasm that's in front of you in terms of comorbid conditions, there's the type of infection, there is the immune response, there's the phenotype of the patient, there is so many things that go into this that I don't think we're going to ever find a magic bullet for sepsis or septic shock, which is what people are looking for here. I, I just don't think we're going to ever see it. If we do, I will happily admit that I was wrong, happily, but I just it's just too complicated. It's a spectrum of illness. I don't think there's going to be one thing. I think it's going to be little simple things that we're doing, like identifying them earlier, getting appropriate antibiotics on board, limiting the amount of fluids we're giving them. And sure, Swami, if there's a 5% mortality benefit giving this vitamin C cocktail, I'll be happy to give it. But I think we have enough on our plates with these patients in terms of lining them up and making sure that we're restricted with their fluids if they're mechanically ventilated, that we're starting to wean that vent as quickly as we can. There are other things that we have to do. And so I just, I don't see this being the, the magic bullet that everyone has kind of hyped it up to be. I agree. I'm a little more hopeful than you are. And maybe, maybe with all of the research that's going on, maybe we find a specific patient population where this can be beneficial. It's not for all comers, but maybe there is a specific subgroup that we research and we find out would actually benefit from this. So I'm still holding out hope that there will be a benefit to this medication or this treatment, but I don't see it right now. And I'm definitely not doing it at this point with my patients. Celine, let's wrap up by giving the author's conclusions, and then I'll let you give the clinical take-home point to bring it home. The authors concluded, and I quote, in patients with septic shock, treatment with intravenous vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine compared with intravenous hydrocortisone alone did not significantly improve the duration of time alive and free of vasopressor administration over seven days. The findings suggest treatment with IV vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine does not lead to a more rapid resolution of septic shock compared with intravenous hydrocortisone alone. I thought they did a pretty good job with their conclusion. Usually people like kind of sugarcoat and try and put a positive spin. I feel like they kind of came out with it. But I think more importantly is our clinical take-home point. And for the listeners, Swami and I kind of talked about this. We actually had two or three different versions of this. And then through some conversation, I think we came to a conclusion that we're both really happy with. And that is that in this trial, treatment of septic shock with intravenous vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine did not improve duration of time alive and free of vasopressor administration over seven days compared to IV hydrocortisone alone. I think it's important to say that believers will say an average time of over 24 hours from ICU admission to first dose of medication set this trial up for failure. But I think the bigger question at this point is, should we be using this metabolic cocktail in sepsis or generalized all sepsis patients or not? And I think Swami and I are in the camp that current evidence doesn't support its use. We'll just have to wait and see how the subsequent trials kind of shake out. And Salim, our listeners can go and check out a bunch of other great posts. So Foamcast has a really nice review. Uh, EM Lit of Note had a great review. EM Nerd had a great review, as well as Palmcrit on both on the MCrit site and both with slightly different opinions. So I would check out all of those resources because I think they're really important to see 
all of those different opinions and different interpretations of the data that we have in front of us. And like we always say, I would also recommend reading the original paper itself. You should always look at the root literature. And uh, it's great to see other people's opinions and kind of formulate your own practice. But I think also looking at the root literature is really important. Well, that's all we got for you this time, Rebel Emmers. Please leave us your comments and questions. And until next time.